So this is a dish I make quite often, so often that I shop for it myself at Whole Foods. You can also buy it at Target, and you can visit us at shop.momofuku.com. But I will get the soy and scallion momofuku noodle that's been air-dried, not deep-fried. I'll cook four packs. I know that seems like a lot, but it feeds my family. And I will have a side of chili crunch. And what I will do is I will add four eggs, and I'll fry that sunny side up uh, so the yolks are runny. And I'll put that on with some scallions, and I'll drizzle that with some sesame oil. You can also use the momofuku sesame oil. And that's, that's the dinner, or that's the lunch. The chili crunch is how I can make it spicy for me, crunchy for me, full of texture and goodness. And Hugo doesn't eat anything really spicy right now. But that's something I use. That's something I buy. I, I buy it myself at the stores. If you're not close to a store that sells it nationally, you can buy it online at shop.momofuku.com. All the pantry items that you'll see at that site, whether it's our chili crunch, our savory salts, our soy or tamari have been developed in our lab, stuff we use in our kitchens and our restaurants, and now you can have it at home. So please check out the Momofuku pantry items plus our noodles that are not deep fried. And listen, I love deep fried noodles too, but the air dried noodle has a different mouth feel. It's clearly a different thing altogether. And when I say different, it's awesome. So check it out. Check out all of our products. Also, Sign up for the Major Doma Media Discord channel. The community is funny. They're full of interesting topics, hot takes, and not nearly as contradictory as myself, where I get roasted all the time. The Discord channel for Major Doma Media, you can go to majordomamedia.com and click on the link and I'll send you there. Sign up. It's all things consumable in culture, all things that we want Major Domo Media to be. We only promote this Discord channel on this podcast. So we want it to be an organic community, people that have things to say, things to criticize, things to comment on, etc. It's a fun place to be. At the very least, it's a good companion to this podcast and to Recipe Club. So check that out. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new pure leaf blackberry iced tea that we have here at the Spotify studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. I'm back in Los Angeles. I don't even know. For a day or two, it has been a lot of travel, a lot of trying to avoid COVID. But, man, nobody's wearing masks on planes anymore. Do you guys realize that? Nobody's wearing masks on planes anymore. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. I'm never going to not wear a mask, especially when flying. But, hey, that's just me. Um, we have our second part of the podcast to Chris Bianco today. Bianco decoded Chris Bianco of Pizzeria Bianco in Phoenix, uh, a couple other restaurants, Pana Bianco, a restaurant called Trato, and he's recently opened up Bianco Pizzeria, his third restaurant of the same name in the row. If you haven't checked out the row, please do. It's just a cool place, man. There's a lot of things going on there, a lot of cool stores. There's nothing like it, quite frankly. And now that you have arguably the best pizza maker, best chef, and most recently, most outstanding restaurant tour in America, in the world, opening up his sort of crown jewel of it all, Pizza Bianco at the row. So check that out. And if you're in the Phoenix, Scottsdale, Arizona, you have a plethora of options. 
our previous podcast was an interview with Chris Bianco. And I promised you we would do a companion to that podcast, a companion with some footnotes, some clarifications on things and breaking down of what I feel are super important moments to his sort of explanation of how he sees the world, how he comes up with dishes, his sort of mini biography of how he got to where he is today. One of my most favorite people in the world, one of the very best of us in the business. And this idea of doing decoded, I don't know if that's a name that's going to stick. I think we're going to continue to do this. But uh, before we get into that interview decoded process of Chris Bianco. Just going to chat about a few other things. One is if you haven't checked out Loot on Apple Plus, please do. Our good friend Alan Yang, co-creator Master of None, worked on Parks and Recreation, Tiger Tail, great movie on Netflix. Check that out. One of my close friends asked me to do a cameo in his show with the wonderfully talented Maya Rudolph, Adam Scott's in it. Joel Kim Booster is in it. It's been a summer of Joel. Really funny. And I play me. So I hopefully don't ruin it for you. But it's a it's a very sharp, funny comedy on Apple Plus called Loot. Check it out. Also, I'm not watching this yet, but it's been getting rave reviews, especially on Discord, especially amongst my sort of culinary circle of friends. The Bear, which you can watch on Hulu. It's on FX and it's made by... Um, one of the producers is Courtney Storer, the great chef, our good friend. She was also on The Next Thing You Eat, our Hulu show. Her brother, Chris Storer, is uh, a, a, in Hollywood. He's a director. He's made a bunch of things. This is their show. You also see Chef Maddie Matheson playing, not himself, but a, a character. And I think Maddie's probably an amazing actor. I am a shitty actor. Maddie Matheson's a great actor. Eddie Huang, very good actor, very good director. I am none of these things. But uh, the premise is a young chef takes over a family business in Chicago and he tries to install a brigade system. Listen, I haven't watched it. I am waiting. I try to find my moments to binge watch as much TV as I can as I travel. So I'm intentionally not watching it. It's killing me, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually. But uh, I just want to give a shout out to the, the store brothers and brother and sister team for creating the bear. A lot of good, good vibes, good things being said about that. Uh, also, I, I, um, I've been back rarely to Los Angeles. I've been traveling a lot to the East Coast, a lot of time in Atlanta. But uh, for one Sunday, I took Hugo out. He was asking for Uncle Adam. We visited Uncle Adam, Perry Lang's barbecue pop-up in Torrance. You can easily find that information. It's an awesome setup uh, in Torrance, this brewery in the warehouse district, open air, delicious food. I think he's doing a couple other pop-ups. I think he's got a few things in the works, but check it out. Extremely good food. It's the kind of thing that I want to travel to eat. Barbecue is always that kind of food, and I'm glad that Hugo likes it now as well, barbecue. Um, I want to address something that has nothing to do with pizza, and that's making dashi at home. I scroll through Discord under my burner account, and I get a lot of DMs, and one of the things that we get quite a bit is how to make dashi. So for those that don't know, dashi is arguably the 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 the, the found one of the building blocks of cuisine in, in in of cooking of gastronomy in Japanese food culture. There's a Korean version of dashi that's a little bit different, but if you watch the old Mind of a Chef uh, series, uh, we we talk a lot about katsuobushi. You know the origins of the Momofuku Lab, which created a lot of the culinary uh, consumer product goods that you can get for your pantry right now originated with my deep dive into katsuobushi. I wanted to understand it because it was such a fundamental part of gastronomy and the brilliance of it. it I, I just think it's one of the most amazing ways to make a flavorful liquid broth versus, say, a veal stock, right? Veal stocks can be as complicated as, say, Thomas Keller's version, which is cutting it into one or two inch cubes. It's extremely labor intensive. It's also the foundation of, say, French cuisine. I made a lot of veal stock in my day. It's it's expensive. I've never made it uh, in my restaurants because I just don't make those kinds of things, those heavy sauces, which can be delicious and have its moments. And being a saucier is an amazing art. It's a craft. And, you know, it's like when you go to a restaurant like La Bernadette, you get to taste sauce making at its highest form. 
you know, they're making literally every kind of goddamn sauce, but one of the foundations to sauce making is really veal stock. I just don't have the patience or the love for that versus, say, something like dashi. And it's not restaurant making dashi, how I explain it. And there's a, there's a lot I want to say about it. So first and foremost, it is oftentimes made not exclusively with the bonito fish, which is um, smoked and then inoculated with Aspergillus orzie koji, same mold that makes sake, and then let to sort of ferment until it petrifies. And if you crack open a really high-end quality of, uh, of katsuobushi, it looks like amber. And the very best katsuobushi never really leaves Japan, just like the very best epoise cheese or uh, Parmesan Reggiano never leaves France or Italy. Uh, the very best products in Japan, particularly the best katsuobushi, rarely ever makes, at least I find it hard to get. I'm sure other chefs can procure it, but the very, very best katsu is very hard to get. Also, the top, top, top spots in Japan, you're shaving the katsuobushi in the moment, a la minute. And not by hand. They have these, it almost feels like a pedal wood chipper thing. You put your block in there and it shaves your katsuobushi. And I remember working at the Grand, I don't know, the Park Hyatt Hotel. And one of my jobs was to pick up these giant plastic bags that were of katsuobushi that were freshly grated in the morning. And that's how much it was. It was like a giant bag. And I don't know, felt like 40 gallons or liters, uh, a, a huge amount of katsuobushi was used. And there's different ways, right? It doesn't always have to be katsuobushi. I staged at a restaurant in Kyoto where he used uh, bluefin tuna. Sometimes, not always, you can do with kombu. Uh, I, at home, don't always use kombu because I think it can be an extremely overpowering flavor. But I, if I make kombu dashi, I do kombu dashi in and of itself without anything mixed in. Sometimes I'll mix the two, but I like the flavor of katsu, just that's it. And I think I picked that up when I worked for this guy, Akio, uh, at, in the only job I ever got fired at, uh, at a soba shop in Tokyo. You would only make dashi with katsuobushi, uh, with nothing else. Anyway, that medium of dashi is just, uh, uh, it's just a genius fucking thing. And it really is. You get so much flavor and it doesn't take that much time. Like many great food products, it's taken arguably a year to two years to get to that moment, but it shouldn't take you more than, say, 30 minutes to make. And that's, a, that's an amazing process, right? You get this highly flavorful cooking liquid soup, almost, if you season it, almost instantly. And I brew it as a tea. There's science and, and, and specific times for how long you're supposed to cook katsu or if you make kombu. I'm not going to bore you with that. I'm cooking at home. In restaurants, it's a very different thing. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. The guys at Co, Sean Gray, did a spin on a dish that I made a long time ago and improved it to another level by cold pressing katsuobushi with pineapple juice. It's a long story of this dish, and I'll tell you the origins another day. But, you know, you can make dashi out of a lot of things. There's a lot of innovation happening in dashi. You can cold press it, but I like to steep it like a tea. You don't want to boil it because you're going to extract a lot of volatile compounds and just sort of destroy it. It's just a, you know, you wouldn't boil tea or coffee. You shouldn't boil katsuobushi. That's just what I think. At home, I have a variety of ways I make dashi. Number one is I have dashi packs that are Korean. I don't have Japanese dashi packs, which are more Japanese, just katsuo and I think a little kombu. The Korean dashi, Korean has, has their own dashi. Um, a lot of it might be smaller fish or dried fish oriented. Pollock, anchovies, etc. It also has shiitake and kombu. A pack of 10 probably costs around like 15 bucks. I think it's well worth it. I use it all the time in my cooking at home. Uh, today, I just made like a version of oyakudon, which is like a Japanese sort of braised chicken, onion, egg dish, served with rice. I didn't have dashi available, so I threw in a dashi pack in with the chicken. I minced some garlic and onions, uh, a little ginger, and I added some momo soy some water, and that could have been delicious. And, and, and I didn't have mirin, so I added agave. That would have been delicious in and of itself, but I threw in a dashi pack and I let that simmer for about an hour and it came out delicious. And it just changes the flavor in a way that has more umami. So dashi is an incredibly important tool 
to how I make food. And Grace loves my Japanese cooking, so I cook a lot more Japanese than I do Korean these days because I can never match the flavors that her mom makes uh, in terms of Korean food. So there you go. I, I just make a lot more Japanese food. She's uh, a lot happier when I make Japanese food for whatever reasons. Not whatever reasons. I it just She likes it better. So I make more Japanese. Hugo likes it better too. So uh, I have a lot of dashi. Uh, I don't always have it on hand, but I try to make it at least once a month. I'll take uh, probably five to six ounces of katsuobushi, and I'm getting the same katsuobushi that you would get from the uh, H Mart or Mitsua or somewhere online. It is like a C plus grade. It's average at best in terms of katsuobushi because you don't you want to use katsu that's been freshly shaved. This has been in a plastic bag, oftentimes who knows how long. So there is a definite, definite flavor difference whether using fresh or pre-shaved. And I, I, you know, I'll, I'll bring some water to a boil, not a rolling boil, boil, I'll turn it off and then I'll add the katsu without any kombu and I'll let that chill out for like 30 minutes and then I'll strain it out into core containers and I'll have that to use in a variety of ways, whether I want to use soups or noodle soups or anything. And that's the question that was asked to me is like how to make dashi. So that's one way to do it. And I'd probably say if you're going to use five to six ounces of katsu, which is actually a considerable amount. I would do it in like six to eight quarts of water, probably, maybe six to eight quarts. And 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 like veal stock, where it's called a remoulade, where you, you know, because it's such an expensive thing, you can ex still extract a lot of gelatin after the first batch of veal stock. Um, I, you do the same thing with dashi. So you make the first batch, and I've been to places where I've seen you, as long as you continue to extract flavor from it, you should continue to make a, a, a batch of dashi. So you make the first batch, strain it out, and then you can make a second one. And as you go, uh, the first batch is always for the most delicate, subtle flavors or, or dishes. The second batch, as it goes down, it's a little less pure, a little more muddy. That's used for more stews, et cetera, et cetera. So alternatively, you have hondashi, which is the powder form by Ajinomoto, which was the sort of the precursor to modern day monosodium glutamate. I have that. I use that not as much uh, anymore. I still use it occasionally. When I'm in a pinch and I need it, I use it a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. But for me, it's so delicious. It just has that too strong of a taste. Like when you use it in a dish, you know it's unmistakable if someone's using hondashi. And I love it. I'm just saying like I, I, I want something that's less fierce in terms of flavor. But I still use it probably once a week in something. And I have a big jug of that. I have the dashi packs that are the Korean variety with anchovies and pollock and, and mushrooms and shiitake and stuff like that. I haven't tried the dashi pills. They have like these, like, they feel like a, I don't know, look like something you use for your dentures and you just throw it in water and you have a, a dashi mix. There's also something like shiro dashi or a mimi soy sauce that are used as a soup, noodle soup based. Shirodashi, they're high quality and low quality. Uh, even the low quality, I think, are pretty good. And, and, and that's basically dashi that's been fortified with a ton of shit, oftentimes. There are some high quality versions. Josh Geens used to make um, some of his own shirodashi. Uh, it was very, very good. But we're getting outside the normal realm of dashi. So again, I can talk about dashi a long time. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So Bianca decoded 
before I begin, I, I want to sort of just set up something because in the interview, I, I say that Chris is a modern chef. That doesn't seem like a lot, but to me, it's 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 extremely high praise. Um, and this is going to be hard to do on a audio form, but the reality is, what I'm about to say basically doesn't encompass every kind of thing. There are exceptions to the rule. On one end of the chef spectrum, you have classics, the people that are American shokunins or shokunin. If you haven't seen Jiro, Dreams of Sushi, you have people that aren't prioritizing innovation. They're prioritizing sort of the Zen-like meditation about doing something always, over and over and over and getting better at it through repetition. And it's not necessarily repetition, right? It's not a perfect box, but it's the pursuit of the best ingredients and it's about creating the right system to make food in. It's not intuitive per se. Again, this is not hard and fast rules, but I I put this in a work of uh, people that Let's say, as another example, like surgeons, right? Or if you're a doctor, you have people that can basically be surgeons and people that want to cure cancer and AIDS and stuff like that, right? You have the innovation and then you have the workmanlike day to day repetition. And that doesn't mean there's not innovation in the day to day repetition. It's just done in a different way. There's different end goals. I promise you this is going to make sense. This is all tied to Bianco. And I think this is a great way of talking about sort of how I view the chef spectrum in general. So on, on, on one end, you have the classics. And from a culinary point of view, you probably put like Murata-san of Kikunoi or Freddie Girardet, the great Swiss chef. Um, and then someone like Joel Robichon. Not to say, again, like there's definitely innovation. But it's about precision. It's about exacting the same over and over again. And a lot of time being spent to building the right system, getting the right ingredients and consistency over and over and over again. That shit is fucking hard to do. And you're talking about some of the greatest fucking chefs in the world doing this approach. It is not easy at all. I I, I don't have the patience myself, nor would I have the craftsmanship to be that good. But it is a distinct kind of cooking. Again, like... There are people that can wear many kinds of hats. And I doubt there's just one chef that only is in this category, but it's a big category. It's, and this is a bucket that, you know, you almost have to take a stance on. You, you can be multiples, but this is just one of the, this is probably the big, big bucket that is the alternative to the other end of the spectrum. Okay. So imagine this is like a color spectrum. On the other end of this culinary spectrum, so if one end you have people like Kikunoi, Murata-san, and I'm, this is not a comprehensive list, but just the things that are coming top of mind, Freddie Girardet, Joel Robichon. On the other end of the spectrum, you have people like Alain Passard, Pierre Gagnier, Massimo Batura, probably the, the, the titans of this side of kind of cooking are Ferran Adria, Heston Blumenthal. I always joke that they're the Picasso and George Brock of, of modern cooking. So you have classic versus modern. Sometimes you can be both. Okay. I have met both. And I think Bianco is one of those people that is both. And I'll get into that in a second. There's certainly exceptions to the rule, but when I think about Chris Bianco as a chef, he's somebody that is both in the sense that he is a classicist. He's, he's taken traditions from Italy and he's trying to be as honorific and respectful to it as possible. Simultaneously, he's not trying to be authentic at all. And he is putting his own stamp on things. And in his own way that may seem normal and consistent with other other kinds of food made by his peer group, it looks the same. It is distinctly different. And it's hard to find a, a, a common peer to him. Which is why I put him in this, this, this spectrum of somebody that is more on the ends of a modern chef and less on the end of a classicist. And maybe Chris started off as a classicist chef, but he certainly moved more and more to modern. Again, modern doesn't mean, like Wiley Dufresne is a perfect example. Somebody that was a classicist and has a full understanding of modern. The thing is, if you're modern, if you have a modern outlook on cooking, it doesn't mean that you don't know anything about the classics and the tradition. You got to know both. It's just a state of mind of what you want to do and how you want to express yourself. 
and Wiley and people like that would be on the modern end, but Wiley's making pizza now and he's taking a lot of his things from uh, a modern approach of gastronomy and trying to find ways to subtly update, express himself through pizza. I, I, I think about this shit all the time. It's endlessly fascinating to me to, I'm not trying to categorize anybody, but just to see the thought process. I love to see how somebody came to a dish or a point in their career because it's all of their experiences. It's everything they are as a person oftentimes express themselves in the food that is served in the restaurant. And it's an amazing form of expression. I'm a nerd for this shit. So I, I think Bianco is a, a unique individual because he's somebody that will never think of himself as a modern chef, but I think he's the epitome of a modern chef. But he's not pounding it out loud, like, check out all the fucking cool tech shit he's doing. He's a student of the game. He's constantly learning. Anyway, I, I'm going to get a little bit more into that in a second, but I just want to give you the spectrum. You have... On one end, the classics, the traditionalists, and, the, and then you have people that are pushing the boundaries. What is modern? Modern being, you know, updating, constantly using data uh, to update your stance on something, to find something that's potentially better or new. In this conversation we had with Chris, if you listen to it, there's a lot of name drops, and I don't know if I caught them all, but this is my notes. Uh, and one of the things that we get asked a lot is to talk more about chefs that get mentioned. And I have in the past said, oh, this is too inside baseball. Nobody wants to know this shit. So I, I tend to admit it. But it feels like people want to know this inside baseball shit. I am not the culinary historian that's perfect. But I think it's important so people know because all of these chefs that Chris mentioned or other guests mentioned are crucially important to how you eat today in a lot of different ways. Chris mentioned cooking for a lot of these big time chefs. Roberto Dana was mentioned. I don't know if you guys know them, but if you're from the Washington, D.C. area, um, Italian chef that was one of the very first chefs to do super high end Italian dining. Galileo was a D.C. institution, uh, and he, he was one of the first people, I think, to do a tasting menu and, and make, when I say high end, like really high end Italian tasting menu stuff. And Roberto Dana was, was like, Next to Michel Richard or Citronelle and maybe Bob Kincaid. I can't remember the chef at Obelisk, but there's there was a handful of chefs before, say, people like Fabio Trabocchi or Johnny Manis. Um, but like Roberto Dono is like an OG. I think he still has a restaurant now in Vienna, Virginia. But if you're an Italian chef, like he's he was like super important to popularizing Italian cuisine here in America today. And and we should talk about the late Michel Richard another day. Crucially important figure in American gastronomy. And Citronelle was an amazing restaurant. He talked about another chef, and that chef was named Jean-Louis Paladin, somebody that we've talked about uh, over, I don't know, the 300 plus episodes we've done, probably a handful of times. A very, very fucking important person. If you're into food, he is uh, a Prometheus-like figure, right? That may not get the recognition in 2022, but back in the day, wildly respected individual. He was the chef of the Watergate Hotel. He had a restaurant in Las Vegas for a, a hot minute. I remember when I was answering phones at Kraft in 2000, he came in and I was like, oh shit, Jean-Louis Paladin came in. He came in with his daughter. And that was like a big day for Tom and Marco and the whole crew at Kraft because he carried a significant stature. Uh, and the reason was, is he was one of the very first chefs to do this on a high-end level. Jacques Pepin did it on a different level in terms of popularizing food, but Jean-Louis Paladin was um, just driven to get the very best ingredients. And he was a maniac. Like, he just was full-on all the time. And he helped lay the foundation for a lot of the ingredients that we now take commonplace today. And without people like Jean-Louis Paladin... Maybe somebody else would have done it, but he was here helping modernize our food. I have his cookbook somewhere else. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very nouveau cuisine, but he had glasses, a mustache, and he smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. And he had these curly locks. The reason why he was important to me wasn't necessarily because of, of what he brought to the culinary canon in America and, and the professionalism and intensity that he brought. It's that people worked under him that were extremely influential in American gastronomy. 
Sam Mason worked on Jean-Louis Peladin. That leads, connects with Wiley Dufresne. You know, this is, this is all important because this is the narrative that gets woven into the very fabric of restaurants, the, the food that we eat, the ideas that we have. And I'm not saying it gets lost. I mean, I know cooks don't even think about this stuff often, but I think from a diner's perspective, it's also nice to know about these things. Sam Mason, uh, uh, he was a WD-50. He now has Oddfellows ice cream. I'd argue one of the very, very best pastry chefs this country's ever produced. And, you know, Sam Mason isn't Sam Mason without WD-50. If you think about Sam Mason, Sam Mason with Wiley created a template for American gastronomy. That is, America would be a much lesser place today without 701 Clinton or WD-50. It just would be. Sam Mason's sort of ideas got sort of the legacy got handed over to Alex Dupac. Rosio Sanchez worked there. Malcolm Livingston worked there. Many of the top people at Noma, for example, came through the WD-50 crew. So everything's connected, guys. And it's important to know that you learn something and you bring it to somewhere else and things get cross-pollinated and it goes global. So all the restaurants that are using Noma ideas, a lot of those things were maybe planted by Sam Mason. And a lot of those ideas were planted by Jean-Louis Paladin into Sam Mason many years ago in Las Vegas. So... This is the stuff I love to think about because you can trace this. You can trace the origin of a dish. It's so hard to create a new dish that works, that's beautiful, that's delicious, that changes the game. I'd like to know how these things fucking originated. I, don't, I can't explain it. It's fucking fascinating, endlessly fascinating because I think it's fucking art. I really do. I think it's goddamn art to be able to create something that everyone has access to, the same ingredients, but to do it in a way, and, and, and the ingredients are juxtaposed in a way that's never been really been done. And yes, everything's been done before. Yes, I know that. But the kind of food I'm talking about is done in a way and expressed in a way that has never been done before. And I, I find that fascinating. Uh, Chris Bianco mentions David Tannis. David Tannis was, if you don't know, he I don't know if he still writes for the New York Times. I, I think he's... Um, operating a restaurant in Los Angeles today. But David Tannis was one of the OGs at, uh, uh, at uh, Chez Panisse. He was one of the co-chefs. They had an amazing system where you'd work six months and then take off six months. And David Tannis is, you know, this, for people in food, this very important figure, this American chef that helped bring ingredient-driven food via Chez Panisse, and then a lot through his fantastic recipes of the New York Times. So like, these aren't all the names that he mentioned, but there's some of the names that Chris Bianco mentioned, and when they get dropped, they're important for me to hear, and I want you guys to know how important they are. Because I just don't know if people are connecting the dots enough these days. There was a moment where Chris talked about coming up with that simple dessert uh, when he was cooking for those big wigs. Uh, if you're a young chef, and he's cooking in Arizona, and you have in the late 90s or mid 90s, these titans of industry, you basically have like Michael Jordan, Maggie Johnson, Larry Bird showing up to play pickup basketball with you. That's nerve wracking as fuck. Extremely nerve wracking. It was almost a throwaway line for Chris when he said, oh, I just made the simple dessert. It was like, you know, fruit, like on, on, a, on a bed of ice. That is such a powerful moment to me to hear. Because it's those moments that are career defining, right? That you can trust your instinct, that you are not afraid to do something extremely bold. Chris deciding to do that for these fucking culinary titans is a statement. That's a statement dish. And I have no doubt if you're a bunch of cooks or you're chefs and you're going to a restaurant with your peers and you've been fed everything, that's the kind of statement you want to see from a cook or a, a younger chef that's feeding you. You want to see themselves on the plate. You want to see who they are. I'm talking about this because I want more individuality. And individuality can come out just as something as simple as serving, serving some nice fruit on a, a plate with ice underneath. And I don't know if that makes sense. You have these titans of industry coming to check out this hotshot young chef, and he doesn't know what to do dessert and just gives them something that I'm sure when you do that kind of dish where you want to throw up, you're like, oh, is that good enough? Oh, I should have done this. You know, whether you're feeding a critic or the really hard guests are the people that you respect in the industry. 
and you serve them something and you just, you just want to please them. And a lot of times you can overdo it. And when Chris mentioned that, I was like, I was trying to imagine because I've been in that situation, right? And I mean, these are real career defining moments when you're feeding somebody. And when you feed somebody that is super important, that's a peer, something that you've looked up to, something you've idolized, and they respect you now for originality, for taking a chance to do something different. It's a beautiful fucking thing. I love it. I love it. And I've had those moments where I've done it and you are unsure as hell because you don't know what you're doing. And when they respond with, with like true praise, they're not just blowing smoke up your ass. That's the shit you never forget. Clearly, Chris has never forgot about this story. You know, he's talking about it almost 20, 30 years later. That, that's, that's pretty fucking important. So when he told me that in the interview, it was very meaningful for me. Another thing that Chris talked about a lot that I, I don't know if it gets enough credit is authenticity. And yes, if you've watched Ugly Delicious or listened to me ramble on incessantly in a variety of ways, I have a lot of ill thoughts of for authenticity. Number one, I, I'm pro-authenticity when it's used to preserve stories, when there's a story that needs to be told. And again, I'm only anti-authenticity when it's promoted as authentic. I don't give a shit about anyone making authentic if it's like not talked about. But when you're selling quote unquote authenticity, that's where I, I, I get problematic. I think it's problematic. I also think it's problematic when people that are in the media, and I do say the media because they've been the genesis of a lot of this shit, when comparing a dish by a region and they say, oh, this isn't authentic, you know, that's, that's problematic to me. So I have a lot of feelings about authenticity. And deep down, I think that it can be an important tool to preserve traditions, especially lost cultures and stories that need to be preserved. But when it is seen as it can only be good if it is authentic, right? That's bullshit. Whether it's a cheese produced in France or, or, or Italy and it doesn't have the certain marker, that's just marketing. It has nothing to do with intrinsic quality of goodness. I admire so many things about Chris, but what I really admire is his sort of fuck you-ness to authenticity. And that makes him extremely authentic. He's the embodiment of everything I love about a modern chef, right? Somebody that is able to take really pragmatic philosophy, able to experience the world, collect their own data, and make the assessment for themselves. I love that. That's like a, 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 just a, a part of the operating engine for Chris. I, I, I wanted to highlight this idea of how he interprets authenticity because it's not me talking about it. It's somebody else that's talking about authenticity in a way that is extremely innovative and, and inspiring in the, in the realm of Italian food, the kind of food that Chris chooses to express himself in. And he's very great at expressing himself in and cooking in. I think the idea of cooking local and cooking what's around you and trying to find ingredients that may be similar, but not exactly what you might find elsewhere, that's authentic. If you take really, to me, the spirit of, say, Italian food or Japanese cuisine or cooking, quote unquote, locally, which, you know, is a real privilege, like to be able to do that, that doesn't mean getting the exact same ingredients. I think it's getting what's around you and using your know-how to imagine what the flavors might be like with a different ingredient. To me, that's the ultimate, one of the w best ways to show respect to a food culture is to so like, I'm not going to create a facsimile. I'm not there anymore. I'm not using that terroir. I'm not using those ingredients. I'm here in another place and I'm going to try to incorporate the ingredients, but because I know the flavors and I know the technique and I know the narrative of how this food's supposed to be, I'm going to try to use something that has nothing to do with these ingredients or something that has a close approximation to these ingredients that are authentically true. And I'm going to do something that's different. And I think that pursuit of doing something different is more authentic than the pursuit of authenticity, if that makes any sense. I think it's so pure. I fucking love it. And I want to see more of it personally. But again, like if I was starting out right now, someone like Chris Bianco should be known not just for his success, but how he got there and the way he thinks, not so you can em like copy it, but you can emulate his ideas and how he 
has this engine for creativity. I, I used to say this as a joke, but I mean this. Uh, now that I do a lot more media, I think that chefs are storytellers. We are content creators. We're content creators in the same way that any other medium uh, of content gets consumed, right? If it's your movie or if you're a musician, you just consume this content in a different way and it's highly ephemeral. What, whatever kind of chef you are, whether you are a classic traditionalist or a modern chef, you are a storyteller. And I think people should embrace that. And I think one of the things that Chris does better than anybody else, and he doesn't thump his chest promoting it, is he tells stories. And as a storyteller, some, I, I, and I, you know, this is really what I was just trying to say. is like, he's a fucking artist, man. He really is an artist. You know, he just makes content that's digested differently. I think the story of his Rosa pizza, and I said this on the first part of the podcast, and I even said it as much in an interview, is the best, single best story of how a dish was created I've ever heard in my life. Because if you break that down, it, it tells you so much. And it's just this lifelong story of how he came up with this amazing dish. I've tasted it. It's fucking genius. It's beautiful. It's expertly done. But what is more expertly done is the thought process in getting to that dish. Like, is it a really great pizza? Yes. Is it the best thing I ever had? No. Is it one of the best stories? Yes. That's why I asked him about it. I mean, yes, he's spoken about this pizza. It's, it's out there. But the whole story hasn't always been captured. And when you think about how he, he came to this idea of doing pistachios versus the original dish that he had in Italy right on this and it was focaccia that he tried to recreate but it was a disaster and it wasn't the same nuts and he learns over the years that it can be something else but by making it something else he's now paying his greatest homage to the original focaccia in Italy and using local ingredients and how he came up with that right this benchmark dish that shattered his existence Right. If you haven't had one of those meals before, or one of those bites where it just knocks you on your ass and you're like, what the fuck was that? All right. And the way he described this focaccia that knocked him on his ass, I, I'm pretty sure I felt that same thing before. You're like, I don't understand what the fuck that was. That is like God, God-like, and I need to get to that point. But it's not about recreating this, this, this exact dish. He's recreating a completely different experience and he gets to a dish that looks nothing like the original dish. And this is an important story for me because I tell cooks, even though I don't spend time in the kitchens anymore. Today, we all, including myself, are habitually editing in our heads. And when I say editing in your heads, you have an idea of what you want, your goal, right? We have all of this technology, all this ability to self prognosticate to help sort of paint a picture of what this end goal might be that we're trying to shoot for, especially when it comes to a dish. I see this so many fucking times when you're coming up with a dish or talking about a dish, you think to yourself and to the others around you, like, this is what I want. You sort of, you can even sketch it out. This is what we're going to be. This is what we're going to do. And instead of making it, you think about it because like, why would I need to make the scallions? Why would I need to break down the duck breast or why would I need to make this sauce? I already know how to do that. And this is where labor cost and food cost can come in because like you start to cut corners. You start to cut corners because maybe you're short on time, you're short on budget. But by cutting these corners, you remove the process of actually doing it. And when you're actually making something and you're lost in the art of, in the craftsmanship of making something, that's when you can be creative. That's when you can start thinking about the dish. And what you're also eliminating is the failure. When you start to edit in your head, in your mind, with your imagination, you eliminate all forms of fucking failure. You immediately come up with as the, uh, uh, the most efficient version of the dish in your head. I'm, see I'm tired of seeing this, man. And I'm guilty of doing it now, too, a lot of the times. It just never ends up right. It just never fucking does. Because by the time you, if you go through all the steps and all the iterations, and again, I've talked about this before, but I'm going to repeat myself. If you have this idea of a dish, whatever it may be, in your head, you iterate and you evolve it. So you do diff 25 different versions till you get to a better version of this dish and you think it's done. And you might, you, you, you might be able to recreate that dish in real life. You have 
eliminated all of the awesome work to get there potentially. And I think we're, we're just not putting in the work creatively, myself included, to like do the fucking process, to trust the journey, to trust the process. I mean, in the sense that if I physically made 25 versions of dish X and I failed at doing it 25 times, by the time I got to the 26 version that I've already ideated in my head, that's perfect. It's quite possible that if I did 26 versions of the dish, the 26th version may look nothing like the actual imaginary version. It may be something completely different. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I guess I'm saying it's bad, but it is those exact, those 26 iterations of that dish, that failure that will get you to that moment of like, holy fuck, I think I did it. And in 2022, in this modern era, we're all guilty of editing all of those processes out of the fucking way because we're seeing it. It's, it's seen as unnecessary. It's no different. Again, as I joke, like I don't know how to spell check anymore because I don't fucking spell anymore. I don't have a central direction because I use GPS. Creatively speaking, and I'm sure even if you're not in food, you know what I'm talking about. If you go through the steps of fucking it up, of failing, it gives you a mental advantage that other people don't have. So which is why I say sometimes being too talented and being able to go as the crow flies to the end goal of a creative dish or goal actually is a detriment. If you're actually plotting your way through and toiling and fucking up to getting the end goal, I think you're going to accumulate a lot more wisdom, a lot more scenario building in your head that contrasts with the actual data that you have uh, collected. And I think it's important. So that story of Rosa Pizza, that, that the genesis of that idea to where it is today, when he made it for Phoenix with the pistachios to how it's changed in uh, the downtown Los Angeles version of Pizzeria Bianco is a beautiful story. And I think it encapsulates the best possible way I've heard anybody describe the origin of a dish. You know, you sort of have to experience the world. You have to be well-rounded. You have to be open to things. I'm sure that creative process is applicable to so many different fields. And it got me thinking about, you know, um, David Epstein's book, Range, right? You just don't know. This, this dish probably was like a 15-year journey for Chris. You have no idea. So, you know, this idea, Chris Ying and I talk about it a lot. It's killing your darlings, right? It's, um, God, I can't remember the Faulkner coming up with that, right? Like, just because you eliminate an idea that you're sort of passionate about doesn't mean that it's dead forever. You have no idea how it's all going to connect later on. Because some other experience may trigger this moment, this nostalgia. It's, it's no different, like, say, when um, you might smell a cologne or perfume and you instantly think about an individual or a moment in time. That kind of nostalgia can't happen with food or any kind of event, whether you're reading a book, watching a movie, whatever. You have no idea. So if you eliminate the process of failure, you eliminate all the different ways that you can potentially connect the dots. It becomes a much more linear fashion. Uh, and I hope to remind myself to just fuck it up and to fail and to trust the process. It is not a failure. It is not broken unless you leave it there to be broken. You can pick that shit up and deal with it another day, but you have to keep on plugging along. You have to keep the momentum happening. You just don't know, guys. You just don't know until you keep on moving. You break through that inertia and you keep on plugging along. And sometimes those dots don't connect and sometimes they do, but you will never see that till after you fuck up, till after you continue to fuck up. And you just don't know when it's going to connect. It may connect years later, decades later. So just be open. You need to be a sponge to the things around you and you need to be you know, curious and, and, and uh, precocious and verify the truth in ways that are meaningful to you. And I'm telling you this because I think I need to refresh myself with this shit. I've been a little too fucking jaded, not a little, a lot too jaded. And I've been closing myself off to possibilities. And I think that's the point of going out in the world of traveling and doing new things of fucking up is creating your own opinion on certain things, getting your own data set to verify what you think is meaningful to you. So I guess it's a little bit like American pragmatism. The idea that, you know, what is actually truthful to you is, is this going out, getting experience, getting data and finding if it's, you know, it's, it's, it's functional. Is it, is it truthful to you? 
because it's functional and practical, right? Is it useful to you? And I think that's, that's, that's part of the beauty about going out there and, and getting stuff done on your terms and doing things in a way that no one else has done. And don't worry if it doesn't make sense to anybody else. You just got to go out and do it. Um, so again, I, 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 I really want to get Jerry Saltz back on, but I think about Jerry Saltz, 33 rules before I had to be an artist. It just, I think that's single handedly the most important set of rules for a chef to think about or aspiring chef and anybody that's creative to be able to learn to express themselves. Because I think, you know, that's what Chris has been able to do by taking a lot of the classic approach to Italian cuisine and his own you know, even jokes, his own 10th grade educated, limited knowledge about the world, it caused him to be insatiably curious about how things fucking work from relationships with humans to fucking how food is grown and everything in between. That has caused him to be extremely modern in his approach. He really is an original thinker. He very much is. And I think that synthesis, that combination of all of that shit that Chris has gone through has caused him to be modern. So he's not traditionalist and he's not like cutting edge breaking through, but modern as someone that like, I'm using the stuff that's around me to make it a little bit better. And maybe it's not better, but I'm going to give it a shot. And I think what Chris Bianco has done really should be emulated, not copied to a T, but emulated. And, and it's, it's beautiful. I, I mean this sincerely. He's one of my close friends. Even if I didn't know him, this is what I'd be saying because it's fucking remarkable. He built this career in Phoenix, not really known as the hotbed of gastronomy and arguably not just making the best pizza. You know, you can get a conversation of who makes the best pizza all day long, but Chris is fucking up there, but he's not just pizza. He's a great fucking chef. And if you listen to his interview, he thinks so originally, and that's what makes him a great chef. So, you know, He's a fucking artist. He's a beautiful man, makes beautiful food, and hopefully you enjoyed it. And hopefully I, I made, you know, somebody see something they didn't already see in Chris Bianco. And if that happened to just one person, well, it was a good thing that I rambled on. But um, that being said, thank you, Chris. Thank you, everybody. Um, and we'll be back with another podcast. Uh, give us five stars. Join our Discord channel. And yeah, stay safe, everybody.